Welcome to Global Connections with Robert Siegel, presented by the American Friends of Rabin Medical Center. Our monthly leaders forum addresses vital issues facing society, the economy, real estate, medicine, technology, and science. My name is Dr. Joshua Platt. I'm the executive director of American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, AFRMC, a 501c3 national American charitable organization based in New York City. We at AFRMC represent Israel's premier hospital, Rabin Medical Center, and Petach Tikva in Greater Tel Aviv. The hospital serves 1 million patients annually from all ethnic and religious backgrounds with the same compassionate care. Please support our mission and join our community of friends. And visit American Friends of Rabin Medical Center online, afrmc.org, via our website and social media outlets of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Coinciding with Breast Cancer Awareness Month, today's Global Connections topic is COVID and Cancer, Breast, Ovarian, and Prostate Cancer Treatment and Research, and how this relates to BRCA genetics. Israel's Rabin Medical Center is home to the Davidoff Cancer Center, a 10-4 facility the most comprehensive and leading cancer treatment and research facility in Israel and the Middle East. Here in the USA, AFRMC's donors and new friends continue to raise funds from individuals, foundations, and corporations to help Rabin Medical Center's urgent need for cancer care, research, and cancer medical equipment. A favorite annual event is our Cheryl L. Diamond 5K Cancer Schlepp, a run-walk both in New York City and Santa Barbara, which funds a BRCA clinic and cancer research at Rabin Medical Center. Help us bring the 5K Cancer Schlepp, a run-walk to your community. Please join us to eradicate breast, ovarian, and prostate cancer. Our host and moderator for Global Connections, is Robert Siegel, former host of All Things Considered on National Public Radio for 30 years. Over the course of an hour each month, Global Connections features guests who Robert Siegel interviews as they explore important issues in our world arising from the global pandemic. Today's special guests are Dr. Mary Claire King, Dr. Susan Domchek, Dr. David Margo, Dr. Jerome Groupman, and Dr. Pam Hartspan. And now, Global Connections with Robert Siegel. Thank you, Josh. Since June, uh, we have been, as we say, navigating the new abnormal in these monthly panels. We've been exploring the changes that we've all felt since the pandemic, uh, the economic crisis it led to, 
uh, also the months of social distancing and the tensions in our society, racial, economic, political. We've considered how our country might recover and how our schools might reopen. And today, a somewhat different focus. Uh, October is breast, uh, breast Cancer Awareness Month, a cause that has been important to the American Friends of Rabin Medical Center from long before uh, COVID entered our lives. It remains so. And it's the subject of this panel, which features some extraordinary uh, physicians and surgeons, our subject, COVID and cancer. We're going to begin in Philadelphia with oncologist Susan Domchek. Uh, Dr. Domchek is at the forefront, both as a clinician and as a researcher uh, into breast cancer. She directs the Basser Center at the University of Pennsylvania's Perelman School of Medicine. Uh, the Basser Center focuses on cancers related uh, to the two BRCA genes. BRCA stands for breast cancer, and mutations of BRCA1 and BRCA2 are linked to breast cancer as well as to other cancers. Uh, Dr. Domchek's interests include using genetic testing to improve cancer prevention, uh, testing, and treatment. Uh, and Dr. Susan Domchek, I want to thank you for joining us in uh, navigating the new abnormal today. Uh, welcome to our panel. Thanks for having me. Uh, first, the overarching question uh, that uh, started this series of discussions, the pandemic, uh, has it affected your work? Or does it affect the hospital patients, people who should be our patients? Uh, what would you say? Absolutely. It's been a difficult uh, seven to eight months, and it keeps, seems to just keep on going. And it's affected us in uh, small ways and large ways. In the beginning, we shut down surgeries. Uh, individuals who were going in uh, for breast surgery, if you were in a large city that had a lot of cases, we put all those surgeries off in order to preserve ventilators. And when you think about that, that's just absolutely astonishing. We were trying to make decisions about whether to give chemotherapy up front or to wait, uh, whether our patients were at significant risk of death if they were getting chemotherapy and had COVID at the same time. Now, over time, we've had to adjust and figure things out, and we're much better prepared now. Um, we are well back up to our normal levels of uh, surgery. Uh, we've done chemotherapy throughout this, um, but we've learned a few different things. One is that many, many women particularly have put off their screening. They've put off their mammography. They've put off their breast MRIs, and we're quite concerned about an increase in later stage cancers related to this. It's not just breast cancer, people put off their colonoscopies as well. So we're worried about healthy patients whose care will be delayed. We still worry about our cancer patients, not only physically uh, with the COVID-19 still a major problem in our country, but emotionally. Um, we still um, limit visitors, uh, and uh, meaning that a lot of our patients are getting chemotherapy by themselves, uh, and which is not ideal. Uh, we've definitely loosened up on that, but we have to really keep a close vigil to make sure that we're not exposing patients. And I'll be honest, I think physicians are a little tired. It's been a, a long time. I had clinic today. I was in a mask and goggles, you know, all day, and that just gets a little old. So I think it's been a, a long time, and we're really trying to empower our patients to get the care they need. Um, because we want to cure cancer, because in the end, COVID's going to get, go away. And although we'd like cancer to go away soon, too, COVID's going to go away before cancer does, and we need to stay on top of it. Jews of Ashkenazi background, that is of Eastern Europe or some Central European uh, background, uh, are more likely to carry the BRCA genes uh, than other people. How much more likely are they? 
are quite a bit more likely. So one in 40 individuals of Ashkenazi Jewish descent has one of three common mutations in BRCA1 or BRCA2. We call these Ashkenazi Jewish founder mutations. And so it's, it's quite common. If you're in a large crowd in a synagogue, you know that people around you, somebody will have one of these gene mutations. In the general population, it used to be felt that they were about one in 500, but we know now that they're more common than that. Uh, current estimates are approximately one in 280, uh, exactly the number. Uh, Dr. King may, may have a slightly different number, but certainly more common than we used to think they were. Uh, and this you know, gives rise to the, to the issue that when we first did genetic testing starting commercially in the late 90s, uh, we had much stricter criteria for who should get genetic testing. Um, and those thresholds have been falling and falling and falling. And uh, as we'll hear from later, you know, maybe they shouldn't exist at all, particularly in the Ashkenazi Jewish community. Well, you took part, the center took part in a, in a, in a project, of a mass screening project in, I guess, four American cities. Uh, was the takeaway of that experience for you that anyone with an Ashkenazi Jewish grandparent or anyone with uh, several relatives who had had cancer, all of those people should be screened? Well, that's, 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 we did find that, as expected, about one in 40 people have a, a, a mutation. What was interesting to us is that we would thought that we would enroll in that study very quickly. As you mentioned, four cities, 4,000 people. No one had to come into clinic. This was all a digital health platform. Um, so we tried. We didn't make them pay for anything. Their insurance didn't get payment. There were essentially no barriers to participation. And it took us three years to enroll into that study, despite the fact that we were advertising uh, through synagogues, through every possible way that we could think of. And what this showed to me and uh, one of our colleagues, uh, who uh, Dr. King has worked with very closely, Dr. Lahad, has shown that if people are recommended to have testing by their physician, they're much more likely to do it. So one of my priorities is really from an implementation vein. We actually have to have doctors talking to our patients about this. And, the, you know, my last name is Domchek, which is ethnically ambiguous. And I have never, and my mother had breast cancer, and I've never once been asked in a doctor's office if I'm of Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry. And so, you know, we have to actually ask these questions to determine what kind of risk uh, uh, people have of having these mutations. So there's just a lot of education that needs to go uh, to providers. I, you know, I think that, you know, direct access to patients to genetic testing is a whole nother topic, but it turns out that patients do what their doctors advise them to do. Mm -hmm. so we don't want to forget that. We need to, to educate doctors more widely about why this information is important so they can talk to their patients about it. And just to put this in some context of, of breast cancer cases in the U.S. generally, what share are BRCA linked or do we know? Right. Yeah, it's 5% approximately. Uh, now, there are other genes, um, and so it's not just BRCA1 and BRCA2 anymore. Uh, the challenge is that BRCA1 and BRCA2, we know the most about uh, mutations in those genes. We know the associated cancer risks, ovarian cancer, prostate cancer, pancreatic cancer. A lot of these other genes, the risks are not nearly the same. And one thing that we have to be super careful of as we implement this testing is that, you know, everyone's not painted with the same brush, that the same, the same recommendations aren't given to someone with, for instance, a CHECK2 mutation as a BRCA1 mutation. They have very different risks and very different approaches 
And again, this is why it's our job as experts in the field to provide the necessary education to both providers and patients so we get this right. Because what we're trying to do is use genetic information to improve outcomes of patients. And that means doing not too much, not too little. We need to do the right amount for each person. Well, how, how much have things been improved? That is to say, if you do get positive test results, uh, how are the odds of, of recovery or survival uh, at this point compared with 10, 20 years ago? Well, BRCA1 and 2 are such a great example and really a paradigm of how we can use genetic information to help people because we now clearly know the risks that are associated. We know that there are prevention efforts that can be done to reduce the risks of cancer. Um, now, I'll get back to you in a second. They're not great options that we have right now, so we have work to do. And what's just so amazing is that we've actually developed targeted therapies uh, for cancers related to BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutation. And I got to tell you, I didn't think that was going to be possible because it's targeting a gene that's turned off. It's actually much tar easier to target a gene that's turned on. So the science behind that is extremely cool, by the way, and a reason why basic science is so important. But we need to do better. I mean, right now, the best way to prevent breast cancer is to have a woman take their breasts off or to have their ovaries out and go through very early menopause, which has a lot of negative consequences. So what we're doing at the Vassar Center, which many organizations are doing, is trying to provide, to find better prevention options that are non-surgical to allow our patients to have better opportunities and to have better lives. Well, Dr. Domchek, hang around because we'll, we'll have a question and answer session later that Susan Domchek of the University of Pennsylvania, Vassar Center, and you, by the way, attendees can put questions to our panelists using the, the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen. Dr. Domchett, thanks a lot. Thank you. Uh, around 40 years ago, a geneticist, Mary Claire King, had just gotten tenure at Berkeley uh, when she landed a grant that ultimately led to her landmark breakthrough. Uh, ultimately, in this case, I'm using to mean, I think it's about 15 years. Uh, she showed that there was a genetic link to some breast cancers, and she located that pair of genes we've been hearing about that are prone to mutations that cause cancer. We should say men and women both inherit that gene. It predisposes them to several kinds of cancer. And Mary Claire King is now the American Cancer Society Professor of uh, the Department of Genome Sciences and Medical Genetics in the Department of Medicine at the University of Washington. She joins us from Seattle. Mary Claire King, welcome uh, and uh, thanks for taking part in this uh, today. I, uh, are you there? You have to unmute yourself. Yes, um, unmuted. Many thanks, Robert. Good. I, I used your full pleasure, title. It's a privilege to talk with you. <laughs> well, that's, that, that's very nice of you. I, I used your full title, by the way, because it struck me as a, as a, uh, a mark of, of, of how, how far we've come. I can't imagine when you began all this that there was a title such as uh, uh, Department of Genome Sciences and Medical Genetics at most hospitals. Right. right. No, quite so. I was at Berkeley, and I was in a Department of Molecular and Cell Biology. So we have come a long way. If in fact, in those days, it, was, it, was it not yet known or were you thinking outside the box to say there's a gene related to, to uh, cancer, I'm going to find it? I think it's fair to say I was thinking outside the box. Um, it, I began thinking about this in the, in the 1970s. So this was, of course, at the very dawn of molecular biology. And my thinking was constantly informed by all of the fabulous molecular biology going on around me in Berkeley. But Berkeley is, of course, a, a, a very strong place for basic science. As Susan said, 
this kind of thinking has from its very beginning been a marriage of basic science on the one hand and clinical uh, perspective, uh, clinical innovation on the other. And one of the most exciting parts of it for me, I'm not clinically trained, one of the most exciting parts of it for me has been to work more and more with clinicians and to see the creativity that is associated with the prepared clinical mind. There's absolutely nothing like it. Mm. And as Susan says, the role of the clinician now in preparing uh, primary care physicians to provide to their patients information that their patients can productively use is really a high priority for all of us. I'm curious, though, what, how did you come by the conviction that there must be a gene? It was a matter of, of finding it. Why, if that was not, not uh, conventional wisdom at the time, right. well, uh, why was it evident to you? You're a good journalist. I'm not sure evidence quite the right word, but <laughs> there had been there had been very good work going back to the time of the ancient Greeks and very actively since work by um, Paul Broca in 19th century France that breast cancer runs in families. But many things run in families. Money runs in families. The, the question was, did breast cancer run in families for reasons other than environment or cultural transmission? And over the years, it became increasingly clear that there was no obvious non-genetic reason that breast cancer should run in families. It wasn't like lung cancer and smoking, for example. So I had, I come from a background of evolutionary biology. I had worked on human evolutionary problems as a, as a young graduate student. And I thought, well, suppose that what we are thinking about is a problem of evolution, just really, really, really short-term evolution, just evolution of a, of a family that goes back a few generations rather than evolution that goes back millions of years. Can we, can we have an insight about the way this illness works using genetics as a model? I, I come out of math. My first several years mm-hmm. in this field were, was mathematical modeling. And, and, and there's this link uh, between the genes that you located and Ashkenazi Jews, mm. as a, as a full blooded Ashkenazi Jew, I, I ask you, how did we get stuck with this? What 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 happened that, uh, <laughs> uh, that makes this a, a disproportionately Jewish problem? The, 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 the Jewish community uh, has many many features which I find absolutely fabulous and enormously appealing, and I I am so fortunate to have been largely adopted by this community. Um, but some of those features are particular forms of particular genes that we need to deal with. Um, it's it was simply bad luck that these mutations occurred as early as they did in in the uh, in the population in the uh, European Jewish population. These are uh, these are not like the mutations that predispose to Tay-Sachs or to cystic fibrosis or to Canavan disease. They differ in a really important way, and that is the mutations that predispose to Tay-Sachs or Canavans, one must inherit one from each parent. But for the BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutations that predispose to breast cancer, ovarian cancer in women, prostate cancer in men, if either parent transmits the mutation to the child, that child will be at high risk of the gender-specific illness. So there's no way that these can be selected out uh, because of marrying one's cousin or not marrying one's cousin. They simply are there in the population. The illnesses, of course, onset after uh, women have children by and large. 
So it's up to us to deal with them in ways beyond what natural selection can do. But since this, we're talking about uh, one's genome, when one is born with this, with this, with this uh, gene, uh, how far are we from a time when your medical history, as opposed to uh, uh, being a, simply inserts of the various conditions and vaccines that you've, that you've had, is your genome? And that uh, everyone could, could, could research or have researched their genome right away to see what, uh, what, what they're inclined to and what they're not inclined to. One could do it now, but honestly, I'm not sure that it would change us very much. For the genes we're talking about today, it would matter enormously. But I would absolutely not advocate um, a, a young child learning that they carried a mutation in BRCA1 or BRCA2. As my friend Liz Swisher, who is a gynecologic oncologist, said, she has had at the time she said this two teenage daughters. She said, if one of my girls learned that she carried a BRCA1 mutation, I would say, don't text and drive. There are things much more important to growing up, to staying mm-hmm. safe when you're a young girl than knowing that you have a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation. I would like to see every woman offered the opportunity for testing for these genes at about age 30 or so. I just didn't want to belittle your other accomplishments. Uh, you, you did uh, forensic identifications of victims of the dirty war in Argentina, and you're responsible for the finding that humans and chimpanzees are 90% genetically identical, 99% genetically identical, which uh, in some years I think is easier to accept than other years. <laughs> right. Maybe living through one of the easy ones. Uh, but there's just one special place I wanted you to mention. BRCA is the gene that went to court. It's, it's the gene that went to the Supreme Court. And you should just... Uh, uh, BRCA went to the Supreme Court and emerged victorious. Uh, when, when BRCA1 was cloned, what my group did was prove the existence of the gene and locate its chromosomal position. That was what was possible with the technology of the late 1980s. Um, the gene was actually cloned by a company in 1994. And that company um, patented and then, and then aggressively enforced a patent on testing, the kind of testing that Susan was just now talking about for the gene. That led to very high prices. It led to constraint of a woman being able to get a second opinion. It led to an inhibition of applying the best genomic technology to testing. And in consequence of all of those things, the ACLU working with physicians and advocates brought a case to the courts and ultimately it went to the Supreme Court uh, questioning whether it was legitimate for a gene, which is a product of nature, to be patented. And the Supreme Court decided unanimously that a gene is a product of nature and cannot be patented. And consequently, within 24 hours of that decision coming down in June of 2013, testing opened up very widely, (laughs) prices dropped more than 90%, and the technology improved immediately. It, it's a very good example of how having actual market forces come to bear in this modern genomic space is so important. Well, Professor Mary Claire King, thanks so much. And hang around because we still have questions uh, from the attendees to come. Uh, uh, Mary Claire King, professor uh, at uh, the University of Washington in Seattle. The BRCA gene uh, is present in men the genes are present in men as well as in women. Uh, in men, the gene is linked to several cancers, including prostate cancer. And we're going to turn now to the institution we support, uh, Israel's 
Rabin Medical Center in the greater Tel Aviv area in Petah Tikva, and uh, to Dr. David Margal, uh, who founded and leads the Rabin Medical Prostate Cancer Focal Treatment Program, and he's the founding director of the Urology Research Unit and the Male BRCA Comprehensive Research Unit and Clinic. He's also an associate professor of surgery at Tel Aviv University and our guest uh, right now helping us navigate the new abnormal. Uh, Professor David Margo, welcome to our panel on COVID and cancer. Thank you very much for having me, Rob. And uh, first, as Israel is experiencing a second wave of COVID, or has experienced it, uh, what, what impact has the pandemic had on, on your work, whether it's screening or treatment or research? So as Susan pointed, the first wave was, um, at first, we just stopped. So we stopped all elective surgery. We stopped our BRCA clinic. All our clinics basically were stopped. Um, and although I'm a urologist, I did not treat one single COVID patient. I still was not allowed to treat my patients um, because the hospital's focus was on uh, saving reserves. Um, that was between March till almost mid-April. Um, and now we have completely regained all our work. We uh, continue our normal work. I do a lot of telemedicine. So a lot of my uh, clinic appointments are done from far, but still I go ahead and do them. Um, among the healthy population, the carrier population that I care for with my BRCA clinic, I do see some delays in screening especially among the um, older age group, uh, because they're scared to go, get in contact with other facilities. So they're scared to go for their ultrasound, they're scared to go for their blood tests, and they'd rather wait. Um, uh, but otherwise, we are you know, slowly adjusting to this I mean, weird on, thought bomb. Uh, apart from anecdotal information, can you tell from two different kinds of responses to COVID in two different periods of the year, uh, whether there's an appreciable difference in, in, uh, in, in the two in terms of general health? Um, so um, I think we now manage to understand that COVID's probably gonna be here for a while and we need to learn and live with this. Um, a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of people just, you know, either are completely ignoring this. The older population is getting is 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 a bit more afraid of the consequences for their health being, but they are understanding that they need to care for other problems because, you know, as Susan said, um, cancer is not dead; it's yeah. still there. Um, and it's still a threat. And for BRCA population, they really know uh, the consequences of cancer. They all have a first-degree family member that suffered from cancer. So um, uh, they are learning to live with this. Yeah. And, and I think now um, um, the medical population, at least, we are encouraging them to keep on doing what they did before. Wear masks, keep social distancing, don't go to parties, but you should keep your tests and you should get treatment if you are discovered to be sick. Well, back to BRCA. Uh, if, if uh, let's say, a, a male patient takes a test and it indicates that he's a carrier of the gene, what do you do? What, 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 what's the next step? 
Okay, so uh, male BRCA, as opposed to women, where we know a lot, males, we are starting to learn. Um, we do know there is an increased risk for prostate cancer. We do know there is an increased risk for pancreatic cancer. We do know there's an increased risk for breast cancer, but it's very rare. Mm. Um, the guidelines on how to screen and how to prevent maybe these cancers are, are there, but they're based on very limited data. Um, we opened a male BRCA clinic in 2014. We now have over 500 male BRCA carriers that I see annually. We have, uh, all of these are enrolled in a study of screening. Um, I offer them screening from the age of 40. I offer them screening for prostate cancer. We now just published an MRI screening study where we did not use PSA. We used PSA and MRI for screening. Hmm. And we used... Uh, we we should say PSA. PSA is familiar to me. When I go to a physical and I have a blood test, I see numbers, a dozen numbers. One of them is PSA. It's an indicator of a possibility of, of, uh, of prostate cancer. And uh, I'm fortunate to have a low one. But that's what you're, that's what you're, you go beyond that is what you're saying. Yeah. So for the normal population, prostate cancer screening is debatable. Among BRCA carriers, it's less debatable. So most people believe BRCA carriers should be screened for prostate cancer. How to screen them is a bigger issue. Most people so far have used PSA, which is a protein. And if its levels elevated, suggest there might be a risk for prostate cancer. Um, in our clinic, we use both imaging and PSA. And if one of these is, are abnormal, we do biopsies. So I do quite a lot of biopsies, but I find a lot more cancers. In our screening study, we found about 8.5% of men who, on their initial round of screening had prostate cancer. Um, and what you would expect on initial rounds of screening in the general population, about 0.5. Um, in a previous large BRCA screening study, which was based only on PSA, which is a protein, it was about 3.6 or 4%, so about twice as much. So you're saying we have been, by conventional means, we've been undercounting the, uh, at least in the Israeli population, which is one of the, obviously, the most densely populated with Ashkenaz, Ashkenazi Jews, as, as, as one could find, uh, you had been undercounting the, the prevalence of... Uh, prostate cancer. Yeah, that's another point I want to make. Ashkenazi Jewish uh, is, is a problem for an Israeli. My generation of Israelis still know what an Ashkenazi is. My kids, you would ask them, I'm not sure they know. Um, it's a mixture of population. And in the next generation, Israel will not be differentiated. So you will not know who's an Ashkenazi Jewish in, if you live in Israel. And in addition, Israel also has a unique population of minorities. The Arab Israeli population we know nothing genetically about. And I have several carriers who are Arab Israeli. They have BRCA mutations, they have ATM, BARD1 mutations, all these different mutations that we never knew about. Dr. Mario, hang population. in. Uh, hang in for the Q&A after our... Uh uh, next two panelists whom we're going to talk to. Thank you. That's Dr. David Margul, uh, who is with the Rabin Medical Center 
in, uh, in Petah Tikva. Our final pair of panelists uh, have studied the interactions between doctors and patients, uh, in addition to many other things that they've done. In particular, they've looked at the ways in which individual preferences and biases figure on both sides of those encounters, doctor and patient. Uh, in their book of a few years ago, Your Medical Mind, uh, Jerome Groupman and Pamela Hartsband wrote about the personal attitudes uh, that figure when a test or a medication or surgery is under discussion. Uh, they found, for example, that while some of us assume that the, the more treatment, the better, maximalists, uh, others figure the exact opposite is true. The less intervention is better. They're called minimalists. Uh, that pair of contrasting preferences, as well as other such pairs, uh, characterize both patients and doctors. Pam Hartsband is an endocrinologist. Jerry Groupman is an oncologist and hematologist who also writes for The New Yorker and for other publications. They both teach at Harvard Medical School, and they're both married, uh, amazing to each other, in fact. Uh, <laughs> Pam Hartsband and Jerry Groupman, thanks for joining us uh, today. Thanks for having us. A few years ago, I'm simplifying right at the year, you interviewed many doctors and patients and found these different attitudes that arise when medical problems are discussed, maximalists, minimalists, uh, believers, doubters, uh, and some other pairs. First, um, does the discussion of a hereditary or genetic disease uh, bring those different outlooks uh, into play with any special force? Uh, Pam, do you want to start us off? Sure. Um, so I think whenever patients are faced with information um, about a, a medical problem, um, they have to make decisions. And in genetic diseases, it's particularly complicated because you're dealing with probabilities often, not with a, an actual diagnosis, but a risk of a future problem. And there's a lot of disagreement among experts about exactly what the best course of action might be. And when we did our field research looking at how patients make decisions, we found that there were primarily three factors that played into this. One was numbers and how numbers are presented. Um, the next was stories, how the kinds of stories that people had heard and how they had internalized those or not. And finally, the mindsets, these characteristics that you were just referring to. So I think these very much all come into play when trying to make an individual decision, especially when we're talking about personal risk and there's disagreement. So, for example, uh, the BRCA gene, um, uh, Jerry, Jerry Groupman, uh, what, what kinds of issues arise when, when that's discussed with the patient? I think that in families, for example, where a sister has had a very aggressive breast cancer. Uh, I cared for a family where the youngest of three sisters had uh, breast cancer and um, was the first of the three sisters. Uh, the breast cancer was discovered at a very advanced stage. And despite the most um, aggressive efforts, uh, she died. And that kind of impact impels the other family members uh, in what's called availability, a very dramatic and very jarring personal experience to be tested and often to take measures that, uh, as Susan said, are indeed radical for a woman to have her breasts removed 
preventatively, prophylactically. And if you do have children, typically to have your ovaries removed and have an early menopause. Other families where even though the BRCA gene may be discovered, if there hasn't been an uh, event like that, other women will often take time and think about it or seek out other information, either from a broader family uh, experience or go on the internet and so on. Uh, and some others may decide, even though the data may not be as compelling, to try medication like tamoxifen or another kind of um, treatment uh, to hopefully prevent breast cancer. And others may take what's called the minimalist point of view and just watch and wait and hope that some of the newer experimental drugs may ultimately prove to be beneficial short of uh, something that they see as a radical uh, intervention like mastectomy, even though that's the most defined way to prevent breast cancer at this point. So and, what's and, called availability, yeah. what's dramatic and available in your mind has a major impact in yeah. stories, as Pam said. In fact, what you're saying is the numbers, the, 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 the statistics may show something, but the number one, if it's one very powerful story that's been close to you, could uh, could could be more significant than... Uh, than exactly. It changes your... Um, understanding of the likelihood that it might affect you because you might be given a number and say that you have a 10% or 20% risk of something. But if someone in your family or a close friend had that experience, then you, you just feel that this is more likely to happen to you despite what might be a low number quoted to you. What, what I understand, uh, the, the, the two of you uh, uh, to, to have been saying when you wrote uh, your medical mind a few years ago, uh, is that when a question arises about how much treatment is the right amount of treatment, what kind of treatment is the right treatment, which way should the patient decide, there isn't necessarily one best way, one obvious correct answer to that question. Do I, am I right about that? You're right about that. Um, Many times, as, as a clinician, we'll be giving information to patients, and you may give the very same information to two patients with similar background, let's say a similar mutation that puts them at risk for um, cancer in the future, and they may make completely different choices. And when we first appreciate, started appreciating this, um, we wondered why that would be. Why would two people make a completely different choice when they are given very same information? Um, and people have studied this with regard to, for example, anticoagulation, a totally different situation with atrial fibrillation, and found that the more you inform patients, the more they, they spread out in terms of what they decide, whether they're going to take a, the sort of more maximal treatment or the minimal treatment, um, and this has been a source of great uh, confusion, I think, to the researchers who are studying this, who felt that with health literacy, basically explaining everything as completely as possible, everyone would make the right choice. But the problem is that what is right for one person may not be right for somebody else. Before we go to questions and answers, I just want to ask one other to follow up on that just once. Uh, 
I, I, I uh, see what you've done as, as, as part of a powerful uh, movement of perspectivism that, that we should take into account different takes of, on the truth, uh, not just what I think an encounter with a cop and on the highway is, but what, what does an African-American think of the same encounter? How is it different? Uh, is there still some room for the patient who wants to hear from uh, his or her doctor an authoritative uh, answer with all the confidence of, a, of a, an airliner pilot telling us that there's going to be some turbulence uh, and assuring us that uh, we shouldn't worry about what his or uh, her guidance is? Is there room for that kind of patient? Absolutely. And so there is, it's very uncomfortable. It's very anxiety provoking to have what's called decisional conflict, to, to feel like you're betwixt in between. And there are many patients, and it's understandable, with their physician will say, tell me what you think is best. I trust you. I understand what the information is. You are a person of expertise. Tell me what you think is best. And, and that is a very legitimate kind of uh, uh, approach. So long as it's done in what is now called shared decision making, that, that it's not just a top down, I think this is right and it's my way or the highway. It's more that you've been informed, we've discussed it, and you are giving me in some way the proxy to make the decision on your behalf. That's Dr. Jerome Groupman uh, and uh, Dr. Pamela Hartsband. And uh, the book that I, was, that I was asking them about, by the way, Your Medical Mind, was published in 2011. And it's fascinating. Now it's time for your questions uh, to, our, to our panelists. And there are already some. Here's one from Vicki Wolf, who asks, why did Dr. King say the age women should be tested age 30, uh, but not include men in this statement, since it's 50-50 uh, for including breast cancer in women and men in addition to prostate, pancreatic, etc. This listener is clearly thinking ahead. Uh, it's, it's a great question. I was trying to thread the, when I, when I first made that recommendation, my friend of Fratlevi Lahad and I made that recommendation now several years ago, we were trying to thread the needle between um, what would be what would be radical for the time, that is the idea of having population-based screening for people who were affected or unaffected by cancer, and the subset of those people for whom we could give definitive information. And at the time we made that recommendation, I think it was about six years ago, we did not know what the situation was going to be with prostate cancer and men. We knew about pancreas cancer, we knew about some of these other cancers that have much, much lower risks, but we didn't yet know for sure about prostate. So we made the recommendation vis-a-vis -vis women. I think we will quite soon come to a situation where the recommendation is equally applicable to women and men. One thing that we need before then, and I look forward to these studies both in Israel and the States, um, is a sense of just what the risks of prostate cancer are for men with BRCA2 mutations and BRCA1 mutations. Regardless, of course, a man with, <clears throat> with, a, <clears throat> with a mutation in either of those genes can pass it to, to his daughters or his sons. So it's, it's critically important from the point of view of family. But that was the, that was the his, history behind that reasoning. Here's a, here's a question that was uh, submitted earlier, uh, and it's for either or both Dr. Domchek and Dr. Margal. Uh, the questioner writes, I am a male over 60, uh, my mother had breast cancer twice and cancer of the spleen, and my father died of colon cancer. I have tested negative for the BRCA gene. What precautions should I and my son 
uh, take given this family history? Yeah, so there are a couple of uh, questions embedded in that question. You know, the first is that uh, it really depends what kind of genetic testing was done and when it was done. Uh, we have really significantly changed how we do genetic testing uh, now. So an individual that might have just had testing for the three common Ashkenazi Jewish founder mutations, we may well do a more extended panel of multiple genes and also make sure that we comprehensively analyze BRCA1 and 2. Uh, Mary Claire can tell us better, but BRCA1 and 2 are huge, and there are thousands of potential mutations in these genes. And sometimes people are only tested for three of those specific mutations. So the devil's a little bit in the details, and I would urge the, you know, the questioner to kind of ask their doctor whether uh, additional genetic testing is indicated. And for instance, the colon cancer depends on the age of, uh, of the relative, how frequently we would do colonoscopies, things like that. Uh, so I can't provide precise information except that family history does matter, even if genetic testing is negative. Mm. But genetic testing has evolved, and there may be updated testing that would be available. And Dr. Margul, uh, what, what would you say to that, to that gentleman? First of all, I, I, I um, second the call. Susan is right. We, I rarely use 15-point mutations to test my patients anymore. We use next-generation sequencing. It's readily available. It's cheap. Um, it's commercially available. They're the color and vitae, a lot of tests out there that cost very little and reimbursed by most insurance companies. Mm -hmm. So we use those even in my very, you know, uh, Ashkenazi Jewish populations where I find a lot of Jewish founder mutations, but I also find a lot of patients that have mutations otherwise non-detected that would not be able to be detected somewhere else. Um, but I do think that even if we don't find now a gene that's related, we might find it in the future. And therefore, family history is important and they should be screened. If Even if we don't find any genetic answer now, it doesn't mean it's not genetic. It's just we don't know about it right now. And I treat them as if they have a family history and they need to be screened very often for colon cancer and others. I wanted to just, just really quickly, I just wanted to make the point that one of our worries, and I think Mary Claire can really comment on this, about direct-to-consumer testing is that when people get a negative test result, they misinterpret that and they think that a negative test result makes them be off the hook when it doesn't. The family history still matters. So in this case, uh, you, you were referring to, to Professor King, uh, when you hear somebody mentioned that either Ancestry.com or 23andMe is uh, asking people about, about uh, their, their, well, telling them what their risks are. You don't welcome that as, as uh, the more the merrier in the, in the uh, medical genetics field. Right. I, I think Ancestry.com and 23andMe are terrific for understanding one's ancestry, although you, Robert, probably don't need it. I think you could probably guess your ancestry without... <laughs> without sending off your DNA. Uh, I'm much more of a mutt and, and my ancestry is much more complex. Um, but as a friend of mine said, to try to infer one's risk of having inherited breast or ovarian cancer in consequence of a test at Ancestry.com or 23andMe is like taking a pregnancy test that only works if you're Jewish. Uh, it's, it's really, it's not complete. It's not adequate, 
and anyone who needs to know their risk of having mutation in one of these genes needs to be tested for that specifically through, as David said, through Invite or Color or one of dozens of different firms that do this in a comprehensive way. Also, as David said, um, in Israel, people are increasingly intermarried. So the, the idea of, oh, I only need to be tested for the Ashkenazi mutations is largely moot. Uh, here's a question for Drs. Groupman and Hartsband. Uh, the the uh, question writes, I am told to postpone my mammogram until after the pandemic. Is this prudent medical advice? If so, how long at most should I postpone having a mammogram? And this leads to a question that I wanted to ask. We, we, we talked about uh, before this, this, this uh, seminar. Is there solid medical uh, guidance as to ideally who should have a mammogram, how often, at what age, and, uh, and when? Well, a few years ago, the New England Journal looked at the mammogram issue and um, four different specialty societies came up with four different guidelines about what age should a woman begin to have a mammogram, how often, and so on. I think the question uh, needs to be individualized um, in terms of what we're talking about today. Clearly, if there's a family history of breast cancer, um, uh, and depending on the age of the woman, uh, um, if there's a strong family history of breast cancer, even in the absence of a clear genetic finding, one would be more uh, regular about having a mammogram. Uh, if a woman is having a routine mammogram and is, it delays it by six months uh, or nine months without any physical finding of a lump on a breast exam and so on, um, then it is something that I think can be done in a comfortable way. Uh, this is a question for Dr. Margul. Uh, what do you see as the greatest difference in how the U.S. and Israel uh, cancer clinics treat cancer? And in your case, since I know you did a fellowship in Toronto, you can throw in Canadian uh, cancer clinics as well, if you'd like. Uh, Canadian and U.S. health systems are very, very different. Right? Um, uh, <laughs> my guess, and, and Israel is also a bit different. It's a bit of both. It's both the public, like the Canadian, and private, like the U.S. Israel has a public um, hospital, but it also has a venting private hospital. Um, and uh, in terms of quality of treatment, I think the, you know, the best centers in both places do good medicine, right? Um, in terms of shared decision-making and how people make decisions, I think there's a lot of difference uh, between the US, Canada, and Israel. In Canada, I went to clinic and people actually wanted to hear what I had to say and they were coming for my advice. In Israel, I usually come as a second, third, or fourth opinion, especially for prostate cancer patients, which I treat. They have a lot of shared decision-making, and each doctor kind of sways them their own way. So um, Israeli crowd is, is, is very educated, and um, they come to tell you how they want to get treated as opposed to what you think is best for them. Um, but, uh, Professor King, I, I, I have a question for you, which is having, having done something which has made us all much more conscious and much more knowledgeable about the genetic roots of our, of our uh, health risks, 
what are the uh, what are there or are there environmental contributors to to breast cancer, uh, and uh, what what role do they play? There are the only a minority of breast cancer in any population is inherited. Maybe ten percent among European Jews, between five and ten percent among pretty much everybody else. Um, there are other there are other populations. A subset of, of French Canadians, for example, have have a higher proportion of inherited disease. But the great majority of breast cancer um, is not inherited. It's still genetic, but it's genetic at the level of the cell, not genetic at the level of parent to child transmission. So, breast cancer is also unusual in that of all cancers, it is the most associated with, with success, with well-being, with, with good diets in girls, with high education of girls. And the reasons are that breast cancer is fundamentally an estrogen-driven disease. And the better, the better nourished a young girl is, the earlier she will begin to menstruate, and the better educated a young woman is, the later she will be likely to have her first pregnancies. Obviously, I'm talking about averages. Mm-hmm. But the length of that interval across all populations, that interval between beginning of menstruation and first completed pregnancy, the longer that interval, the higher the subsequent breast cancer risk. Because the longer that interval, the longer that the breast ductal cells are exposed to a very rich estrogen milieu. And that applies whether one has inherited a predisposition or not. So some of those, some of the features of all of that are probably themselves genetic, but by and large, they are not. By and large, we're talking about factors that have improved over time for women worldwide and much more rapidly in some populations than others. So, I mean, so I was going to ask you earlier, I didn't have time, what, if, do we know what distinguishes those women who have a BRCA uh, 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 mutation and those who, or, or BRCA gene, uh, and who develop breast cancer and those who do not develop breast cancer? And you would say that those who do develop will tend to be more educated and better off uh, uh, <laughs> the sample, is what you're saying, and healthier, and healthier. Among women who have mutations in BRCA1 or BRCA2, the risks of developing breast cancer are very high, regardless. Among women generally, your statement is correct, that among women generally, breast cancer is associated with higher education, with, um, with better diets as children. And these are obviously things we don't want to reverse. It's almost as if God said, I'm going to give you a really tough problem. I'm going to give you a problem <laughs> that, that, that a, of a disease that attacks the most productive women in the world. You figure it out. So we are. Well, but uh, Dr. Domchek, that at least the, the part of the upside of that should be communicating with the, the, uh, the target population should at least be a bit easier if, it, if, uh, if they're the women whom Dr. Uh, Professor King is describing. Well, as, you, as, as you've heard uh, previously, uh, it gets very complicated when you have decisions that don't have to be made at that moment. So uh, an individual who has a BRCA1 or 2 mutation who's at risk for breast cancer does not have breast cancer. And that her risk is measured over decades. So if you see a 25-year-old woman 
her risk in five years is only is under 5%, but her risk over to age 80 is quite high. So we spend a lot of time talking to people about risks over the next year, over five years, over 10 years. What are you wanting to do? Do you want to breastfeed? Do you, you know, where are you with your partnerships? You know, do you have, you know, do you want to get married and have children before you have mastectomy? Do you ever need a mastectomy? It's extremely complicated. And so on one hand, yes, people are very well educated. On the other hand, they're very well educated. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's not as easy. And I, and particularly with the mastectomy decision, people are happier if they make the decision that they're very involved in that decision making. And so we need to be, they ask me all the time, what would you do if it was you? And I, I'm like, I don't know because it's not me. And I think that it's really important uh, that, that people be given time to make these very complex decisions. Time, time. So let me, let me turn to Jerry Groupman and, and uh, Pam Hartsband. Uh, the, the, the kind of discussion, th- this could be one of the most important conversations that a, that a person has in, in her lifetime with, with their doctor. And you as physicians, are, you're under pressure to, where are we now, keep it under 20 minutes? Is that it? That is, uh, don't spend too much time talking to the patient because it, it doesn't check out for the hospital? This is a, a really big problem, I think, for every clinician and every patient that the way um, medicine has moved to try to be efficient. Um, you may have heard about Toyota Lean being applied to um, medical care in many hospitals. They actually put um, GPS on the patients and on the doctors to see how long they're taking to move through the system. And it's considered efficient if you do everything fast. Um, but of course, these types of discussions are not efficient with regard to time. They take a lot of time. Um, we have proposed that it's helpful for patients to try and understand their own sort of mindsets before they even go in to see their doctor um, and to try and understand the doctor's mindset too um, with regard to are you somebody who's a maximalist or a minimalist, fairly self-explanatory. Are you somebody who prefers, has a naturalism orientation or a technology orientation? You want the latest, greatest breakthrough or, or not. And then finally, what we call uh, believers and doubters. The believers who believe that there's a good um, treatment option for them and they're ready to go ahead once they figure that out, whether it be a maximalist or a naturalist or whatever. Um, and the doubters who are incredibly risk averse and worried that the treatment will be worse than the disease. And sort of trying to work through and understanding your point of view and for us as clinicians, as doctors, to be ex- able to e- explain our point of view and how it might be appropriate or not appropriate the patient's point of view for this particular medical problem um, is all part of the discussion and time is is something that has been so devalued in the medical system right now it's it's really contributing to physician burnout and patient dissatisfaction in a very big way in a in a much smaller way it also affects us right now uh, and uh, with that uh, I I've, I've, I've run out of time I could, I, could uh, I, I, I can't imagine a better group of people for me to put every element I've ever experienced to to uh, to ask about you've been great thanks to uh, all of our guests Dr. Mary Claire King uh, Dr. Susan Domchek 
Dr. David Margal uh, of Israel's Rabin Medical Center and Dr. Jerome Grukman and Dr. Pamela Hartsband. Many thanks also to Joshua Plout, Nate Bonzani, and Ronnie Giuliano from American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, and our video and Zoom director, Bobby Grandone. Our program sponsor is the American Friends of Rabin Medical Center. It's a 501c3 national charitable uh, organization that represents, in the United States, Israel's largest hospital, the Rabin Medical Center in Pedach Tikva, in Greater Tel Aviv. Uh, the website, by the way, for the medical center is www.afrmc.org. Join us next time uh, when our Global Connections topic will be Middle East peace after the elections. Looking forward, looking back, looking forward, rather, with <laughs> a very different hour with Thomas Friedman of the New York Times, uh, with uh, Dennis Ross, Ambassador Ross, who was Mideast envoy to five presidents, and with uh, Reith Almari, who is a senior fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. I'm Robert Siegel, and this has been uh, Global Connections, Navigating the New Abnormal, See you next month. Uh, stay healthy and stay safe. Thank you.